0: Hey everybody, Sarah here. Back in 2017, when Laurel and I started Movement Logic, we felt that movement teachers were being short-changed by the available continuing education options out there, and we wanted to fill that gap. Now here we are, five years later, and I'm very proud of the tutorials we've created so far. What's really exciting is, together with Jaisal Parikh, we're launching a brand new hip and SI joint tutorial. In the movement world, the hips and the SI joint get a ton of attention. But at the same time, we see loads of injuries and misinformation all over the place. So what's going on? Clearly, there's some sort of disconnect and an information gap happening. As some of you might know, I have had several hip surgeries, including a hip replacement about 10 years ago. I don't blame my yoga practice for it because there's a meaningful genetic aspect, but I certainly don't think that my years of deep hip openers particularly helped in large part because the way I practiced leaned into my hypermobility instead of working on the stability and the longevity that my body really needed. There's a lot of unlearning for a lot of us to do around things like hypermobility, SI joint pain, sciatica, yoga butt, and other hip-related concerns. So with that in mind, Laurel, Jaisal, and I have created a free HIPS mini course video series for you, in which we address these topics and more, including gender bias and inclusivity, whether we store emotions in our HIPS, and why demonizing the SI joint is not particularly helpful. Right now, you can sign up for the free mini course, and by doing so, you'll get a discount code for $25 off our full hip and SI joint tutorial. This tutorial is a four-hour course that includes the anatomy and normal structural variations of the pelvis that can determine how a person might be able to move, how injuries happen, as well as how we experience pain, and of course, a whole lot about how movement can be a solution to specific obstacles like SI joint pain, sciatica, and yoga butt, and tons and tons of exercises for you to try out. If you're interested in learning a more thoughtful approach to movement solutions for yourself and your students, Sign up for the mini course and get your $25 discount code for the full tutorial. The link to sign up is in our show notes, or if you follow us on Instagram at movementlogictutorials, the link to sign up is in our bio. And now it's time for today's episode. Welcome to the Movement Logic podcast with yoga teacher and strength coach Laurel Beaversdorf and physical therapist, Dr. Sarah Court. With over 30 years combined experience in the yoga, movement, and physical therapy worlds, we believe in strong opinions loosely held, which means we're not hyping outdated movement concepts. Instead, we're here with up-to-date and cutting-edge tools, evidence, and ideas to help you as a mover and a teacher. Hello,
1: hello, hello. Welcome to episode 21 of the Movement Logic Podcast. My name is Laurel. This is our 21st episode. I'm doing this one solo today. My dear friend and co pilot, Sarah, is doing something else. Today, I want to share a story with you about my persistent sacroiliac joint pain and how this experience completely changed how I teach and why I teach. It also spurred me to learn a ton about the sacroiliac joint, to revise my beliefs about it, which were very pessimistic, to learn about pain and pain science as well. And this story is about how I built up my knowledge base and added some teaching skills, for sure, but deeper than that, foundational to that, it's really about how I shifted my language, first and foremost. The language I used to talk about my body, my sacroiliac joint to be specific, but also by extension, how it shifted my beliefs about my body and what I thought I was doing as a teacher, teaching people to move, to be embodied. Now, I'm no psychologist, as you know. I'm aware, though, that language is powerful. I've been made aware of that through my career as a teacher. Teachers are public speakers. The words we use are very important to what it is that we're teaching and how we're teaching. Words shape, at the same time, whole narratives, whole beliefs about what it is we're talking about. And these layers, words, language, beliefs, these shape identity and identity shapes behavior, right? So it's all self-reinforcing too, because behavior shapes identity, which in turn shapes beliefs and language and the words we use. So when we say language influences beliefs, we have to realize that, in turn, beliefs shape language. And so we can't just replace some words with other words. That would maybe come off as really inauthentic, right? We have to kind of get to the root of what we believe and who we are and who we believe we are. So this episode has a little bit of anatomy and biomechanics in it, uh, but it also has a lot of stories and language and human psychology wrapped up in it as well. So hopefully you're a fan of one or two of those subjects. And here it goes. I know many of you probably know this about me. About five years into teaching, I had persistent SI joint pain and it was not fun at all. It caused me to have also this identity crisis, this existential crisis even, because the yoga practice that I'd found so much benefit from had started to make me feel bad. The postural practice of yoga hurt and my SI joint hurt the most. I had this really awful dull ache around my SI joint. It would occasionally turn into sharp shooting pain. It would flare up while I was trying to go to sleep at night. It would come up sharp and shooting and awful while walking. Sometimes in a posture would all of a sudden happen where I would just be in excruciating pain and would have to come out of the posture. My hip flexor seemed to be wrapped up in it as well. The pain would kind of wrap around to the front of my hip. I believed at this time too that my SI joints were inherently dysfunctional, fragile, and unstable joints in my body. By the way, the SI joint is the joint between your sacrum and your two pelvic halves. You can feel your SI joint if you kind of place your fingers where the top inner corners of your back gene pockets would be and sort of feel around there. You might feel like a bony protuberance there called your PSIS, your posterior superior iliac spine. That's right at the border between if you go inward toward the midline of your body from those two bumps. Uh, underneath those bumps are the dimples. If you have dimples there, if you go inward of those two bumps, you'll hit your, your sacrum. So the sacrum is almost kind of wedged between your two pelvic halves, and this base between the sacrum and your two pelvic halves called your sacroiliac joints. Um, so I had pain around that area. And I believe, you know, because of that pain, that my SI joints must be unstable. There's some kind of problem with the joint, I thought. I thought that I had actually made them that way by overstretching the tissues of my SI joints, the muscles, the ligaments, the tendons, the fascia. I believe that in a sense, I had almost like misplaced my sacrum, like it had slipped out of place on the right side, especially, I thought that it was kind of torqued. It was too loose on the right side. It was stuck on the left side. I thought that overstretching had contributed to this problem but also maybe incorrectly aligning my hips, my pelvis, my spine, creating some kind of uncomfortably torqued predicament. And I didn't just feel these things. I vividly imagined them. This was the story I told. That was then. This is now. Today, happy to say I don't have sacroiliac joint pain. In fact, I stopped having sacroiliac joint pain almost immediately after starting to lift weights. I went to the gym. Personal trainer taught me how to do goblet squats, deadlifts, and to hang from a bar to strengthen my shoulders and my hands in that vertical pull position. Those were the three exercises that I did regularly. And this was before I had my daughter. I had my daughter in 2018. I started lifting weights, I think, more toward 2015, 2016. And I lifted weights all the way through my pregnancy. In fact, I lifted weights four days before my daughter was born. And she was born 10 days after her due date. So I was six days late. She was six days late and I was still lifting weights. I was doing all the things. I had zero sacroiliac joint pain during my pregnancy and after my pregnancy. And I don't tell you this to extol or evangelize the benefits of strength training. I mean, I do that plenty. I believe strength training is (laughs) is very helpful and I think everybody should do it actually. But I, I tell you this because I believe strength training worked for me personally in reducing the symptoms that I had been experiencing. I don't think that it's necessarily the solution for everyone. Research shows that actually exercise in general has been shown to be helpful for people with SI joint pain. And exercise is very unspecific, right? What are we talking about? Strength training specifically helped me. But I think it's possible that other types of exercise could have helped me as well. Maybe running or swimming or maybe even just doing Pilates instead of yoga. Something maybe more moderate. Like yoga and intensity, but just different. The point is that during my pregnancy and now, I don't think that my SI joint pain was because I had an inherently unstable or fragile or problematic SI joint. In fact, when I look back on the time before I got pregnant when I did have this persistent pain, uh, I have revised my beliefs entirely. So let's go back. When I had this pain, I actually never got formally assessed or diagnosed by a clinician. Now, I love PTs. They're my superheroes. I work with Sarah. I think PTs, some of them are phenomenal educators. They are crucial in helping people solve problems with pain. But back then, I wasn't as much of a connoisseur of physical therapists. And I wasn't on the up and up in terms of what it meant to be an evidence-based provider and what it meant to maybe not be as much of an evidence-based provider to provide treatment interventions that maybe weren't supported by evidence. And I think that there's a lot of both types of PTs out there, actually. Now I think I'd be much more careful in who I choose to help me with something like persistent SI joint pain. Back then, I probably just would have gone to the first person somebody suggested or whoever I could afford. But anyway, I'm kind of glad I didn't get assessed. Okay. And and let me tell you why. All right. So, you know, I'm a fan of the Physio Network, right? Which is this platform online where people write reviews of research papers, various types of research papers. Listen to Sarah's episode on the three rules of research. If you are looking for a crash course on this, Physio Network's awesome because they take meta-analyses, papers, things like that. They look at them and then write about what's in the paper so that people like me can read it and digest it a little bit easier. I don't have to comb through all the stats and and whatnot, and try to make sense of this really very technical language. These reviewers, they they make it really easy for me to understand. So I go on the physio network and I'm reading about uh, SI joint pain, and I'm learning that there's two ways that physical therapists tend to assess the SI joint when people complain of pain in that area. One is a provocative test. This is a movement-based assessment where they have the person move in a certain way, and then they just observe whether or not that movement provoked pain in the area, and then they can rule in or rule out SI joint involvement in whatever's going on. These tend to be reliable, valid forms of assessment. Then there's another type of assessment that a lot of PTs do, and it's a movement assessment where they either through touch or sight, palpate or watch someone move and they notice how their SI joint is moving, either by touching the area directly or or watching it. As it turns out, despite many PTs thinking that they can accurately assess uh, SI joint movement, and then after that follow through with some type of causative relationship between the way it's moving or not moving and someone's pain, they can't. Actually, they can't. They cannot reliably assess someone's SI joint movement. Not only that, but SI joint movement is not uh, implicated. There's not a strong relationship between SI joint pain and the way anyone's SI joint moves, not even in cases of joint laxity. So people who have hypermobility syndrome, pregnant people who might have a little bit of joint laxity, whether or not someone has laxity is not necessarily predictive of whether or not they're going to have pain either. So I think that I'm glad I didn't get assessed because it, it's very likely that it would have ended up in, an, in a clinic where somebody would have done some type of movement assessment on me and gone, oh, yep, I can feel this side moving more and I can feel the side moving less. And that's why you have pain because your SI joint is torqued, it's displaced, it's whatever, it's dysfunctional and unstable. And this language, I think, would have made my condition worse. Now, maybe the exercise they had given me or the advice they had given me would have made it better. I'm not saying that I completely dodged a bullet by not going and getting assessed. I'm just saying that it's often the case that these non-evidence-based, non-effective assessments just contribute to the narrative of fragility and the narrative of instability and dysfunction that's potentially causing people to be afraid of their body and avoid movement that would otherwise be helpful if they didn't have these fearful beliefs and if they moved a little bit more without so much fear. So why did my SI joint hurt? Well, I don't know actually. I don't know. But what I do know is it probably wasn't just one thing, you know, wasn't one thing that I was doing. And it wasn't one thing going on with the structure. And it wasn't one way that I hurt it. It was probably hurting if I put the pieces of my life together back then, because I was only doing yoga asanas, all of my exercise and most of my physical activity. I was leading a very physically active life. I was teaching multiple yoga classes and teacher trainings all over the city, all over the actually all over the world. Living in New York City, running all over the place, practicing fairly challenging yoga poses. And in other words, you know, I don't think that my yoga practice as the thing that was supposed to prepare me to be able to do all of this was adequately preparing me to be able to do all that. Uh, I don't know that it was challenging my body enough. It wasn't necessarily making me more robust or resilient from a musculoskeletal standpoint. Additionally, in my practice of these postures that I was teaching, I was adhering to what I believed was this optimal alignment all the time. So I had this belief that there were optimal ways of aligning a body that we should seek to find all the time, and then there were these suboptimal ways of aligning the body that we should just avoid. And I identified as an alignment-based teacher. So here's how my identity as an alignment-based teacher, how I differentiated myself in the marketplace right? My specialty and why people came to me, or at least why I thought they were coming to me, was to help them align and move their body intelligently, well, safely. These are words that I would use. In terms of language I use, I think I'd often encourage certain types of alignments as being more stable over others that were less stable or more safe over others that were less safe. I was micromanaging joint positions a lot, like preventing movement at one joint to maximize it in another. Not that that's inherently wrong, like it's not inherently wrong to be able to differentiate, say, movement of the hip from movement of the lower back. It's just that if you are always doing that because you feel like letting, for example, the lower back flex when the hip flexes is dangerous, or letting the pelvis tilt forward at the base of the spine when you're back bending, so the lower back arches a little bit more, right? If you feel like those things are inherently dangerous to do, um, you're never going to do them, right? But you're also going to have this sort of hypervigilant fear around the body in those positions as though like, we don't go there, watch out, right? And, And that type of expectation for pain or danger is certainly not going to help someone who has pain have less pain. Meanwhile, and in addition, a recipe for overuse injury, if you're interested in having an overuse injury, just kidding, I know no one is, but like if you if you have an overuse injury, it's possible that one of the ways you got that was by repeating a motion over and over and over again without variation. And if you think about it, this was the way I was approaching my yoga practice. It was repetition without variation. I repeated the right alignment all the time. Neutral spine, hips rotated or flexed or extended just so, feet aligned very particular way, very linear, a lot of straight lines, a lot of sagittal plane movements like movement forward and back, but not side to side as much or maybe not as much rotation. Certainly not multi right? A combination of movement through the planes. Twists had to be done a certain way. There's a lot of rules about how things should look, even how they should feel. Lots of prescriptive language, lots of prescriptive movement, lots of moving for the purpose of aesthetic kind of looking a certain way and not as much for discovery, for inquiry. And I was avoiding these myriad wrong ways of moving and aligning myself in a very kind of repetitive way over and over again. It may have even, unbeknownst to me, been incredibly helpful for me to explore those wrong alignments regularly because that would have given my body more variety. Additionally, the language I use to describe the sacroiliac joint in particular was also pretty pessimistic in the sense that I thought that everyone's basically everyone's SI joint was pretty unreliable like just watch out for that area it's very delicate it's very fragile and then a lot of people with pain I thought it's because me included it was a dysfunctional or unstable area I had a lot of friends at the time who were yoga teachers along with me who also had SI joint pain so it wasn't just me and we kind of all bought into this idea that there were actually certain poses that were probably the culprit certain categories of poses that were the culprit. And we started kind of axing out these poses and just deciding, you know what, I don't do that pose anymore because it's not good for me. It's bad. It causes me pain. Uh, Let me give you some examples. And maybe you've had this as well, or you can identify with this, or you still believe these things. I don't know. But for example, twists were very, very suspect. (laughs) But it wasn't just like, all twists. It was like how you were doing the twist. So there's this idea that you shouldn't let your pelvis turn in the direction your spine was turning. You should prevent it from turning, and that would be better for your SI joint. But then there was this whole other camp that said the exact opposite, which was that if you keep your pelvis fixed, level, saying Parivritta trikonasana, twisted triangle, can you picture that pose where you're folded forward your legs are kind of scissored apart you're folded over the front leg your spine is neutral probably right If you're doing it right quote unquote right and then let's say your left hand is down and your right hand is reaching up and your your spine is rotating to the right so if you let your pelvis rotate with your spine that means the left side of your pelvis would move toward the floor as the left side of your rib cage moves toward the floor Some people said that was what was causing the problem. Some people said that that was what you should do to avoid the SI joint pain problem. But then there was this other camp of people that would say, no, 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 no. You have to keep your pelvis fixed, level with the floor. Don't let the pelvic halves shift position. Don't let the pelvis rotate. Keep the pelvis level and just rotate the spine from there. And that's going to be better for your SI joint. But then the other camp was like, no, 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 that's what's causing the problem. That's what's torquing the sacrum. <laughs> I mean, the minutiae of what we're talking about here is like a matter of a few degrees of movement. And, and somehow we've decided that like allowing the pelvis to move or not move is responsible for yanking the sacrum out of place at the SI joint. Wow. I mean, relatively speaking, like those would be very low forces distributed through the joint compared to like some trauma that you would experience like in a car accident, right? But yet we felt that those forces were high enough or that the sacrum uh, the SI joint was fragile enough to where those very low forces would be enough to like dislocate the joint. Warrior 1 was banished. Asymmetrical poses in general were thought to be problematic. Definitely no more splits pose, wheel pose, especially if you lifted one leg up in that big backbend. Uh don't do that anymore. Backbending in general became rather suspect especially there was a big argument about how the the hips should be rotated should the hips should you let the hips turn out oh god no that's really going to crunch your sacroiliac joints and that was the word that people would use teachers would use crunch right or gosh don't engage your glutes or if you engage your glutes don't engage them too much or i've even heard engage the lower glutes but not the upper glutes but i'm pretty sure there isn't a lower and an upper glute <laughs> then there was the idea that Oh no, actually, you should engage your glutes a lot, as much as possible. That's going to protect your SI joint. Oh, and you know what? I think we have SI joint pain because our glutes have turned off. Gluteal amnesia is to blame. All types of, by the way, gluteal amnesia is not a thing. Uh, your glutes, if you can stand up from the chair you're sitting on, your glutes are working just fine. Uh, There was, you know, a lot of distrust for a lot of different poses. And then also sometimes whole ways of engaging with the practice like passive stretching got a really bad rap. I think what we thought we were doing with passive stretching, I'll speak for myself, is like, if I were doing something like the splits pose, or like a big kind of try to get your leg behind your head type of pose. It was like akin to um, ripping the drumstick off of the turkey or something, you know, like that we were these sort of inanimate objects that would just kind of fall apart if we pulled on ourselves too much. And, you know, one of the thoughts was that like doing these big passive stretches would potentially dislocate your SI joint somehow. There were there were a lot of things we, we just thought were causing the problem. We avoided then. We canceled even. Hypervigilance was really at the root of all of this though it was like people were afraid i was afraid i didn't know what was causing my pain and so there was just a lot of fear and distrust of the practice especially the the poses that provoked pain of course but then also just of my body now meanwhile did you know that according to science the only established cause of si joint pain this is the established cause this is the one they can show for sure is trauma so think car accidents That's a lot of force. That's a lot of impact that would take place through the pelvis, potentially. If you're in a car accident, yes, that that would be causative of SI joint pain. That's different than correlation. That's different than, you know, being predisposed to SI joint pain. There are also activities and conditions that can predispose people. These uh, conditions don't necessarily cause SI joint pain, but people who have these conditions are found at higher percentage levels to to maybe suffer from SI joint pain. So for example, pregnancy, people who are pregnant could have more SI joint pain than people who are not. Golf is a sport. Golfers tend to have a lot of SI joint pain. That tracks with my anecdotal experience. My father was a golfer. He did golfed a lot and he had a lot of low back pain and SI joint pain. Even people who do step aerobics and uh, use the elliptical at the gym might be more predisposed to SI joint pain. I, I mentioned this a little bit, but anecdotally, I, I said I wasn't alone back then. A lot of yoga teachers had SI joint pain too. And so I wonder if there's something about the yoga practice that might also predispose people to having SI joint pain. You know, I would cover teachers' classes who couldn't teach because they were in so much pain. A lot of my friends who we would commiserate over, you know, all the poses that we hated now because our SI joints were hurting. And listen, you know, for sure, stopping the poses that we thought were hurting us was a good idea. It's, that makes total sense. Of course, you would, you would stop doing the thing that was hurting you at least for a while. But stopping movement, continuously stripping away movement, demonizing movement is not going to address the underlying cause of why someone has pain to begin with, um, which likely wasn't that specific, right? It, it wasn't probably as specific as saying a pose or a type of pose is what's causing this pain. My studies in pain science, as I mentioned at the top, is really where I attribute the most amount of growth I've experienced in terms of how I think about my body, specifically when I have pain. And it's been very helpful for me to understand pain science during these times when I am in pain. It's helped me avoid these really unhelpful, catastrophizing narratives that in my past with my SI joint pain really just made my pain worse. One of the things that pain science has taught me that is really not intuitive. I'm just going to say it, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's been borne out numerous times, very strongly, strongly supported by the research is that pain and tissue damage don't strongly correlate. So you can have an injury like that you could see in an MRI and have no pain. You could have pain and get an MRI and have no injury. You could even have pain And the MRI could show an injury, but it could turn out that that injury was not what was causing the pain. (laughs) It was something else. It's wild. But this has helped me rewrite my narrative around why my SI joint hurt. And it's helped me do so in a way that, that no longer problematizes my SI joint, my students' SI joints, or the SI joint in general. Pain science has always also been incredibly helpful for helping me to recognize the power that words have for influencing what people believe is happening in their body. Listen to Sarah's episode on pain. And she tells a story in there about how one of her patients thought that their spinal disc was putrid and rotting. And Sarah explained to her that it actually, the opposite, it had fully healed because the timeline had been such that the disc would have already healed. And just in rewriting that narrative, this woman's pain decreased fourfold. She had like an 80% amount of pain on the scale and it went down to like 20% or something like that. It makes sense, right? The language shapes our beliefs. Scary words make us afraid. They provoke us. They trigger us. Beliefs that something like the SI joint is inherently unstable. Structure shapes how we show up as teachers, our identity as teachers, as maybe people who are there to protect our students' SI joints because they're vulnerable structures. And so then the language we use is very protective. Not to mention the fact that when we're afraid that we're going to hurt ourselves, we're less likely to move. And when we move less, we tend to have more problems with pain. Words are powerful. And I think words, the language we use, should be as closely considered and worked on as the movements and alignments we teach. The problem is that it's not so simple to just start replacing some words with other words until you've really examined your beliefs and until you've found strong enough evidence to compete with the beliefs that you currently hold and the evidence that was provided to you for those beliefs. And also until you start to examine and maybe shift your own identity and like why you're there and the story you tell about that. Therefore, (laughs) in service of that process, perhaps I could share four reasons why the SI joint is inherently stable, functional, reliable, amazing even. So here goes. I'm going to give you four reasons and some books to read. Okay. Reason number one, evolutionarily speaking, I think there's a very strong argument for the statement that humans are the most successful animals on the planet. Uh, not necessarily the best mammals or animals for the planet, but very. Su- we've been very successful. And our sacroiliac joint is in no small part responsible for that. So If you've read this book, um, you know it's excellent. If you haven't read it, you should read it. It's called The Story of the Human Body, Evolution, Health, and Disease by Daniel Lieberman. And he writes a lot about Darwin, of course. One part of the book, he talks about how Darwin's theory for why humans were able to evolve to having such huge, powerful brains is actually it started when our human ancestors that had just evolved from apes, became upright. In other words, where we went from walking on four legs or limbs to two legs. Because what happened then is by going from four to two, we freed our hands up. And our hands then allowed us to explore our environment and make tools. And these tools allowed us to further explore and learn from our environment to make more sophisticated tools and on and on and on. And it was really The emancipation of our hands to make tools that caused our brains to grow. Well, why could our hands be free? Well, because we were walking upright. One of the most important, what you'll, uh, I'll quote another author here soon, but one of the most important hubs of force mediation is your sacroiliac joint. Okay, so another book to read is the book Born to Walk by the author James Earls. If you like fascia, you'll like this book. Okay, it goes in depth about the mechanics of walking and how humans are the most efficient land mammals on the planet. So, did you know that we can outwalk every other mammal on the planet? We can't run faster than them, but we can walk longer. Because we're so energetically efficient at walking, we don't have to expend a whole lot of energy. And one of the reasons is that we can walk with very little active muscle contraction. And this is because we can use our soft tissues and the elastic recoil of those soft tissues and the efficiency of that passive force production from the tendons in the fascia to, to propel us along. And James Earls named the sacroiliac joint as, a, as that hub of force mediation through the pelvis that allows us to transmit forces from the ground all the way up to the swinging of our arms, which comes from the rotation of our spine. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. Unstable structures are very poor force mediation structures when compared to stable structures. And since the, one of the main purposes of the SI joint is to transmit forces from the ground to the spine, it follows that it would be a very stable structure inherently. The sacrum is the base of the spine, and it's wedged between the two halves of the pelvis, which are the innominate bones. So the forces from the ground travel up our legs into our hips to our pelvic halves, through the pelvic halves to the sacrum, from the sacrum up the spine. And this has been a very uh, successful structure. Evolutionarily speaking, unsuccessful structures, unsuccessful traits, unsuccessful characteristics in terms of the evolution of biological organisms don't tend to stick around very long. So the SI joint evolved to allow us to transmit forces from the ground so that we could walk with incredibly efficient mechanics of gait as well as all the other ways we humanly move. All right, reason number two the SI joint can move a little, not more than 0.5 degrees when standing. However, believe it or not, clinicians cannot assess accurately whether or not it's moving and how much. And I I mentioned this before, but it, it bears repeating. What this means is that because of this unreliability in clinicians' ability to accurately assess sacroiliac joint movement, it follows that if this assessment of the movement of the joint is unreliable, any prescriptive diagnosis they make based on that movement as being causative to pain is bullpucky. Man, bullpucky, there's a word. haven't used that one probably ever in my life, but hey, saved it for the podcast. So what does this mean? It means that additionally... Yes, the SI joint can move. Whether or not and how much it moves has not been shown to be causative to pain, nor has laxity of the joint. So you can have la- la- ligamentous laxity and have no pain, and that'd be just as likely to happen as if you don't have ligamentous laxity and do have pain, right? So it's not causative. Reason number three that your SI joint is not unstable, bones and joint tissues of the SI joint are what make it incredibly stable, namely how the bones fit together and then how the ligaments, the very powerful ligaments made up of incredibly strong collagen, hold those bones together. The sacroiliac joint is made up of the surface of the sacrum, the two sides of the sacrum kind of faceted to the two sides of the Pelvic halves and their surfaces, both surfaces, the sacrum and the pelvic half, are rough. So they kind of fit together in this very high friction way, which prevents translation, movement, sliding, makes it very stable. But there's also this curved shape to the sacrum and then kind of a bony ridge, a prominent ridge at the top, which locks the sacrum into place. So it's very secure from that standpoint. But then on top of that, we've got all these massive ligaments. If you look at uh, an anatomical rendering of that area of the body and you see the ligaments across the joint they're huge and then there's the way that just from a mechanic standpoint gravity helps kind of wedge the sacrum between the pelvic halves but then how ground reaction force helps wedge the pelvic halves back into the sacrum so through compression this joint is held together very securely this is what's called form closure reason number four that you're you're sacrum is reliably stable is that it's thought that the muscles do contribute to the stability of the SI joint, but it's possible but that they aren't as important as we think. This is, you know, something that is debated, this idea of there being force closure or muscles being responsible for the relative stability of the SI joint is one model. It's one way of Of thinking about how this joint is or isn't stable. One of the largest, most powerful muscles of the body, the gluteus maximus, is not very active during walking, right? We know that human gait is very energetically efficient, which means that there's low muscular involvement in gait. The gluteus maximus is also one of those muscles that contributes to this force closure, right? It crosses the SI joint. But if it's not active during standing it's not very active during gait, that would mean then we'd, we'd be almost at risk of our SI joint kind of slipping out of place while standing or walking, and we're not. <laughs> so that one's up for debate. But if our biggest, strongest muscles aren't as active in this movement that we do all day long, and that we can do very efficiently, like the gluteus maximus and walking, it would follow then that maybe muscles aren't as important to the stability of the SI joint as we think, and that it's actually more of a... You know, bony and ligamentous stability that we're benefiting from in this area. And what that means is that a muscle's relative strength or weakness maybe has no impact on how relatively stable or unstable our sacrum is. We could potentially alleviate the symptoms of pain around the area by strengthening our muscles, but it wouldn't be because we made our SI joint more stable, if that makes sense. So back to when I had persistent pain. During this time, I was operating under this narrative, as you know, that my SI joint was unstable. I thought it was torqued. I thought specifically that my right side was really loose, my left side was stuck. And I visualized this looseness on the right side and this stuckness on the left side anytime I had pain. I could visualize almost like this floppy right side and this like really rigid, wedged, jammed left side. And I would do things to try to get the floppy side to not be so floppy. On the left side to be less jammed or stuck. But the things I was choosing to do were like, you know, yoga-type stuff. Somatics, things like that. Pelvic clocks, you know, various kind of cat-cow-type things while sitting. Really low-load stuff. It wasn't working. However, unpredictably to me, there would be times when I didn't have pain. Of course. Since I didn't know what caused the pain, I also didn't know what caused the relief from the pain either. But during these times when I didn't have pain, I thought, "Oh, okay, my sacroiliac joint now is in place; it's not torqued." See, I had this whole specific story of what was happening and what was causing my pain. The story I had was almost like a like a knife or a scalpel. It would. Be able to dissect away all of the other possible causes for my pain, all of the possible contributors, and carve out this really neat, tidy explanation. And then the actions that I took to fix my pain had to fit very narrowly within this narrative as well. And that being said, you know, I'm not trying to say that stories, right, are the problem. I think those are incredibly human as well. We use stories to cope and make sense of our complicated, unreliable, illogical, nonlinear lives, and hopefully try to make them feel more coherent, less confusing, more consistent. They can ground us. Stories can give us a feeling of control over situations that are ungrounded and out of control we like stories we like stories with a protagonist and an antagonist we feel very satisfied when we can name a specific culprit right the dysfunctional tissue the unstable joint and we also like it when we can name one solution right such and such a teacher's class this particular exercise these brand of therapy balls this one muscle that I needed to release, <clears throat> the psoas, this one muscle that I needed to strengthen, <clears throat> the glutes, right? Or when we engage in a specific modality like strength training, right? We like to name those specifics as being the protagonist or solution to our specific antagonist or culprit. But the fact of the matter is, What I've learned is that pain is always multifactorial. There's always a myriad reasons why we have pain. This means that there's probably going to be a number of things we can do to decrease our pain. And the wider the net we cast, the more things we try, not just physical things, but also lifestyle things, the biopsychosocial approach, addressing the biology of the issue, but also the psychology of the issue, the sociology of the issue things that we can change about our environment, for example, the people we hang around. These are all possible solutions to the pain because there's rarely one mechanism at fault. And as a result, there's rarely one solution. We need a multi-pronged, multi-layered approach. But yeah, stories, they can give us a feeling of control, lend some coherence. and, and, And in so doing, sometimes what happens is that we cut off or close off ourselves to solutions that don't fit that story, that don't fit that narrative. For a long time, I would never have even been willing to entertain the idea that I needed to strength train because my identity was wrapped up in being a yoga teacher, which means that my identity was wrapped up in being relaxed, calm, peaceful, present, mindful. And there was associations with these qualities with moving slowly, not efforting, breathing quietly and deeply. But let me tell you what, when you strength train, you are not relaxed. You are probably not breathing slowly. Sometimes you might be holding your breath. You might be grunting. Exertion levels are high, right? You can be mindful while strength training. But in the beginning, as a beginner strength training, this was very confronting. It really challenged my identity because you see, I had identified as a yoga teacher, but more than that, I'd identified with this idea that being good, being a good person meant that I was relaxed and peaceful and calm and not efforting so much, not trying too hard. And the flip side of that was that anytime I wasn't calm and peaceful and moving slowly and mindfully and breathing deeply and feeling soft, (laughs) relaxed, meant that I wasn't good meant that I was, you know, not the kind of person that I thought I wanted to show up as in the world. (laughs) Okay, that's deep. I hope I've painted a clear picture, at least from my personal perspective, of why getting out of SI joint pain was more than just about starting strength training, and why changing my teaching was more about just starting to teach new modalities. No, I had to change my language, change my beliefs, change my identity. I had to reconceive of myself. And that took a lot of time. Why did I have SI joint pain? (laughs) Well, I think in general, there was a lack of movement variety. There was a lack of sufficient stimulus to challenge my tissue's capacity. But ultimately, I don't think it's our job as teachers, for sure, to tell students why they have pain. We don't diagnose. We don't need to be like an out of scope surgeon with a scalpel dissecting away everything that could be causing pain to get to one cause or one solution. That's not what we do. Instead, maybe we can be more like successful fisher people who cast a wide net over the problem. We offer movement solutions that make the systems of our students' bodies more resilient. We expose their brain to novel sensations so that their brains can respond with novel movement output, hopefully pain-free output. We can catch a lot of fish potentially in this way, and maybe potentially many of these fish-slash-outcomes will be helpful in addressing the underlying causes of their pain. We can simply make the areas of their body that are not as resilient and robust as they could be, more resilient and more robust, more tolerant to loads. And we don't do this by narrowing how we move. We do this by expanding how we move. We don't do this by reducing tissue tolerance to load. In other words, we don't do this by reducing the forces that our tissues can manage. But in many ways, we do it by increasing the forces that our tissues can manage over time. This looks different to different people, right? So I think Probably it's the case that many yoga people, and I know that in my little community, my little bubble, there's lots of yoga people who have started strength training and seen immediate improvements to their pain. But what about people who exclusively strength train and have SI joint pain, for example? I bet you a lot of them would benefit from doing yoga. It may be that initially you needed to stop doing certain things, yes, but eventually after this pain, the SI joint pain, for example, has calmed down, you might want to find ways to add those things back in at the appropriate dosage. And to train your tissues, to train our students' tissues and nervous system, to be be able to handle those loads. uh, And maybe even loads even greater in significance. Hopefully, what you've taken away from (laughs) this episode is that as movement teachers, we're not just teaching movement. We're shaping our students' beliefs about their bodies. And this has a direct impact on how they feel in their bodies, both when they're in our presence and when they've gone and left to continue on with the rest of their day and even the rest of their life. We change lives with the words that we use because, to a large extent, teaching movement is about choosing language to communicate. And I would encourage you to choose language that is optimistic, that instills a sense of resilience, positivity, confidence, In the body, not by sugarcoating it, not by telling a lie. If someone's in pain, they're in pain. And it's important to, yes, definitely validate and acknowledge and listen to that. But don't reinforce whatever fear or hypervigilance they have by referring to their body as being inherently incapable or unstable. Instead, examine your own beliefs about the body. Are they true? Is whatever pessimism you have well founded? Question your narrative. Challenge it by trying to move in new ways. Challenge it by listening to dissenting voices. And see if over time, like it did for me, if it actually changes how you see yourself, if it changes what you think you're there to do, if it shifts what you show up to help your students discover and learn. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. As a reminder, nudge, nudge. If you would like a free mini course that will go a long way toward shifting your beliefs about the hip and SI joint, not in a way that tells you what to believe, but rather in a way that might help you open up around some of the beliefs you currently hold and start to question them, maybe soften some hard edges around some of the beliefs you have and make space for other more nuanced views, you may want to get on it and get signed up for the free mini course that you will get delivered straight to your inbox. Head on over to the show notes and sign up for that. That mini course is going to only be available until I believe November 8th. So it's available for a limited time only. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope this conversation has been helpful. You know what I'm going to ask. If you can spare a minute, please rate and review Our podcast, Movement Logic, Strong Opinions Loosely Held, it helps us enormously get the good messages out there about the SI joint and also all the other topics that we talk about to help teachers teach with more purpose, more clarity, more nuance, more critical thinking, and just more joy and fun. If you want to watch me talk to myself in my basement, you can watch the video version of this over on our website, www.movementlogictutorials.com. If you're not on our mailing list, you can get on our mailing list. If you don't want the free hip and SI mini course, fine. Still get on our mailing list because there's more coming down the pike in terms of continuing education around the hip and SI joint that you are definitely not gonna wanna miss. Movement solutions for conditions like sciatica, yoga butt, hypermobility syndrome, tightness, just generally having tight hips, uh, sacroiliac joint pain, of course and so much more. So get on our mailing list if you're not already. Thanks for joining me and we'll see you next week. This was baked into my identity and it's how I earned money for survival.